It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bits and Pieces podcast for September 2022. Huge amount of stuff happening this month, so I'm delighted to be joined again by my Indie Life podcast teammate James as we try and make sense of it all. Hi, glad to be here. Whether you're a normal person wondering how on earth you're going to heat your house as it gets a little bit chillier and the nights start drawing in, or a banker wondering what on earth you're going to spend your newly uncapped bonus on. You should probably buy more candles. And what's more expensive, buying lots of candles or running the lights? September's been a bit of a strange one, hasn't it? It sure has. Way back at the beginning of the month, we didn't know who the new leader of the Tory party was going to be. And we certainly didn't know we were going to get a new king. But what we did know was that Boris Johnson was about to leave his job. It's always interesting to see how Britain is regarded. And I think the rest of the world collectively agrees that Brexit was a, an act of self-harm. The first clip we've got is in perspective from America. This is Trevor Noah. Honestly, I don't get why anyone still thinks they can do Brexit. You realise now it has destroyed three prime ministers. I mean, clearly it's cursed. It's like one of the treasures in an Indiana Jones movie. Everyone who touches it is just going to be like melting. At this point, things in Britain are so bad. Like, I think one of the old countries should just colonize them. <laughs> yeah, this is out of control, people. Look at these savages. They don't know what they're doing. Someone just come in and bring stuff in. Like, India should come to England and be like, look, 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 we hate to do this, but you guys don't know how to govern yourselves. We have to, we have to fix this. We have to fix this entire thing. I like the fact at the end that he said he should go to England. I mean, it might just be that common mistake that everybody not from the UK makes, which they equate the UK and Britain and England and think it's all the same thing. That's usually how it goes. They go, I'm thinking of the UK, when in reality they're thinking of London. The next clip we've got, it's Farage, the evil grandmaster of Brexit. But the reason I've included this is because he's talking to Angus Brendan McNeil and Farage starts with that usual trope that he's too lazy to have bothered to check out in 10 years about Scotland being too poor. Angus Brendan McNeil, of course, is the SNP MP for Nahillanen and Yar. Scotland separated, how would it pay the bills? Well, you'd have to ask the same question of Finland, you'd have to ask the same question of Iceland, the same question of Sweden, of Portugal, of everybody else. And you should know, of course, that since 1945, the UK hasn't paid the bills at all. It's been putting on loan and loan and loan debt and debt and debt, and it's only paid back about 1.7% of all monies borrowed uh, in the last 70 to 80 years. So to ask Scotland uh, how would they pay the bills when the UK hasn't paid its own bills, I find it is a bit rich. What we do see round about us is the prosperity of Ireland, having left the UK, is the prosperity of Norway uh, with its, its oil reserves uh, and doing a lot uh, for, for the green agenda as well. Uh, we're seeing how Iceland's getting on with the population of Dundee. Uh, and we're seeing how Scotland's getting on with uh, a government we don't vote for, a government we haven't voted for, a party we haven't voted for since 1955. Uh, I've no worries about how Scotland would get on after independence. This thoughtless, mindless attack line that comes up regularly that they've not even bothered to try and update, and it's just so easy for it to be bounced back now. Yeah, that's a strong one. It is a good rebuttal. But I mean, it's not an attack line designed to be 
taken by the opponent and go, ah, oh, good point, got us again. What it actually is is like an easy tap-in goal for his supporters who go, ah, he's right, because they also haven't bothered to update their opinions in a very long time either. Yeah, dog whistle politics. Last month we brought some coverage of the Power to the People campaign. They're still at it. They've had another demonstration in Glasgow, this time outside Ofgem. This is Cole McHale and Francis Curran talking about the energy crisis. Last week, Liz Truss announced an energy price freeze. But it's not a freeze. It's a con. The reality is all of our energy bills have gone up and we're expected to foot the bill for this fake freeze. On October 1st, the average energy bill will still rise by 27%. For households across Scotland struggling to afford rent or food, that's still an unaffordable rise. That's because our energy bills have gone up 120% in the last 18 months alone. This freeze is going to cost the taxpayer £150 billion. And where is the money going? Straight to the energy companies. It's a gift from the government to the billionaires and they're raking it in straight out of our bank accounts. When she was saying about how much more it was going to cost the taxpayers, I was thinking that was even more damning in light of more recent news that there's massive tax cuts now to the wealthiest of us. Oh yes. All along we've been told that this crisis is because of the price of gas. But just now the price of gas is falling and our bills are rising. That's because the real cause of this crisis is profiteering allowed for by governments happy to let their pals rake in millions in profit whilst people across Scotland freeze. We're still in an energy crisis, it's not resolved, it's not going away, people can't afford to pay this, it's not over and we're going to fight it. Yeah, I think we're going to pay for it all with borrowing. Then they made it incredibly expensive to borrow. <laughs> the, the pound is plummeting right mm. now because the rest of the world is looking at the UK and thinking, are you guys mad? The bank's only response to that to try and steady the markets is going to have to be put up interest rates. The effect it's had is that people who are in the process of arranging a mortgage, all those offers are being pulled because they don't know how much they're going to be paying on that mortgage, so they don't know how much they can afford. Yeah. Who does best when they've got high interest rates? It's people with huge amounts of money in the banks. Mm. So this discredited idea that oh, if you make the people at the top really wealthy, it'll trickle down to everybody else. And it's been discredited for decades. This isn't going to stimulate growth. People have nothing. Power to the People protest is continuing. There's another event on the 1st of October, a demonstration in Glasgow, George Square at noon. Unfortunately, that's also the day of a train strike. But Cole McHale was interviewed. They'd obviously put him up against random economists that they'd managed to find from England. And his responses to Cole's points just got weirder and weirder and weirder. There's a Treasury leak today which predicts that the biggest gas and electricity suppliers in the UK are on track to make £170 billion over the next two years, OK? £170 billion that, with nationalisation, we could take and redistribute democratically with public ownership into the services that people rely on every day. Around 72% of Scots in this country are expected to fall into fuel poverty as we move into January with excessive energy bills. Whilst the nationalisation of energy may not solve this energy crisis, it insulates us against market volatility going forward. It would mean buying out these energy companies. So the TUC estimate that to nationalise the big five energy suppliers would be about 2.8 billion pounds. This equates to roughly the sum of money that the UK government has spent bailing out the energy company Bulb over the last year. So if we'd chosen to nationalise the big five when we made the call to bail out Bulb, 
we would be in a much more sustainable position going forward, able to insulate ourselves against the next energy crisis. But retailers who sell you your energy are only part of nationalising energy. Producers and suppliers also have to be dealt with, as do uh, transmitters. The a key problem with this argument is that the part of the energy supply chain where the prices have gone up very rapidly is highly competitive international markets. The reason why energy prices are high is that the Russian um, gas, which is a very large proportion of the European energy market, has been withdrawn because of the uh, Rus Russian invasion of the Ukraine. That's bid up the international prices. And the prices are high, not because of any particular uh, profit seeking, just because there isn't enough energy. So it's being bid up by everybody wanting it. If we started saying, well, we don't want to pay the price that Qatar Gas or the Venezuelan oil company or whoever it is wants to pay, then they're not going to sell to us. This is a weird argument. The UK's reliance on Russian gas is about 3%. Half of the UK's gas comes from the North Sea and a third comes from Norway. So the only people that we could nationalise there would be the plethora of um, small uh, and in some cases obviously larger as well um, energy producers which operate in the UK. So you'd be talking about all the wind farms and the oil fields and the gas fields and every solar plant and all of those kind of things. Now the thing about that market is that, that still wouldn't solve the problem that there isn't enough energy. Again this is not quite true is it because the energy crisis in the UK is because 4.5 million UK households are in fuel poverty and this is predicted to rise to 6.7%. This is not necessarily because there isn't enough energy, it's because of the price of that energy. In the UK as a whole, the energy mix is oil accounts for 42%, gas 29% and renewables 28%. However, in Scotland, 97% of our electricity comes from renewables. So this is very much an Anglo-centric view of the situation. So even if you nationalised all of that, what, what you would end up by if you nationalised it and forced down the price would be rationing energy. You'd be telling people you're only allowed to go into the office so many days a week or the kind of thing that happened in the 1970s. A much better solution if you want to address the question, of course, these companies are making the highest profits at the moment because they're the ones with the energy to sell. You could either say, well, look, fundamentally, this is our um, stuff, you know, they're selling the Queen's oil and the Queen's coal and they're using the Queen's sky for the wind and the this Queen's sea for the tides, so we should charge them royalties. What? The Queen's sea, the Queen's sky? What is he on about? And I mean, the other word that didn't appear there anywhere was Scotland's oil, Scotland's wind, Scotland's wave power. Um, so we should charge them a large portion of the profits which they're making okay. as a royalty because it's our stuff they're selling. And that would be a better solution than nationalisation. I don't, I don't think that's right. I mean, if you look at France, energy prices have barely risen. The government has limited price increases to 4% annually. Whereas in the UK, if you look at just April to October, we're facing 80%. What's the difference? In France, energy is part nationalised. And in response to this crisis, Emmanuel Macron, who's no friend of the left, has nationalised the remaining shares in EDF. Okay, so the state energy company is now 100% in public hands. Two thirds of customers in France get their energy from that state supplier. The French government has a monopoly over energy and so has been able to force EDF, the state energy company, to discount the price of gas or part of it. Well, they haven't really made it work in France because they're, they're saying that they're likely to introduce um, uh, rationing in France because they're not going to have enough energy. What they mean by rationing is is not like and you will have to march into your grandmother's room and turn her radiator off. On France 24, a French Prime Minister, Elisabeth Bourne, warned companies about the risk of energy rationing, but urged them to take steps to reduce their consumption. And she said, if we act collectively, we can overcome the risk of shortages. 
to the people he's trying to talk to, rationing will be perceived as a dirty word. Yeah, it's, yes, it's, it's harks just... back to the war and the here's your two ounces of butter. Yeah, it's a, it's a flip turn on that for sure. Yeah. The reason why they've kept the prices to the consumer low is because the government subsidised the price. So if you want to subsidise the price, you don't have to do that by nationalisation. That doesn't really achieve anything. You could just say, look, the government's going to pay the energy suppliers for the energy at the international energy price, and uh, we're going to supply it to the um, consumers at a much lower price. That would cost an absolutely gargantuan sum of money, as it's costing. He's complaining that the French have subsidised the price of gas. That's exactly what our government has done by putting this £400 towards everybody's bills, or rather we're not getting it, the energy companies are getting it, and capping prices. That's them subsidising in the same way. So he's simultaneously complaining about the French doing it, and that's exactly what the UK government's doing. He's equating bailouts with a nationalised company as to being the same as just bailing out the existing privately owned companies which is to wash over the fact that if it was owned nationally, they're not trying to draw a profit, which is largely the issue with what's happening privately. That is a really good point, because the point with a nationalised company is that the profits then belong to the nation that has nationalised them, not the shareholders that currently are sitting on billions. And let's not forget that corporation tax on the profits, VAT on the purchase of these things, it's all going to the UK Treasury. So they are actually making huge amounts of money off the profits of these companies. Nationalising here is a kind of a, it's an illusory policy. It doesn't really achieve anything. I don't think the nationalisation is illusory, especially if you're looking to the future. We can't have a just transition that's left to the hands of the market. If the current energy crisis shows anything, it's that these companies are all about profit. In the same way they don't care for their customers, they don't care for the climate. So many examples of this. If you look at the fact the UK are about to approve a new gas field, Jackdaw, we are overwhelmingly dependent on gas, more so than other European countries. Nationalisation offers us a chance to kickstart a renewable transition and invest in wind, water and solar, creating good trade union jobs and driving investment in wind and etc. Right? So we can transform energy from something that functions in the interests of profit and shareholders as it does just now. These companies' sole interest isn't in making sure that we have affordable okay. energies, but in making money. And this is John Swinney's statement on energy in Hollywood. A lot has been said in the debate about the fact that the government should stop talking about independence and because of the, the scale of the cost of living crisis. This is a parliament of different opinion. And we come from different political traditions and we believe different things. And my view of the energy crisis is that there is no clearer example why Scotland should be an independent country as a consequence of the energy crisis. Because we live in an energy-rich country where we have virtually 100% capacity to generate a renewable electricity and we're locked into a UK market that prices our electricity based on the wholesale gas price. What an absolute absurdity. And again, a failing market is about to be bailed out by a United Kingdom government having bailed out the financial services sector many years ago. So I think if we look at the, the lie of the land just now, to me, the arguments are compelling that Scotland has to have the democratic choice of independence so our country can decide what is best for those who choose to live here. You're listening to Bits and Pieces.
In the next section, we're going to look at the other massive change in our political landscape. Johnson is out. This next clip is by the fantastic Led by Donkeys who do this better than anybody else. As Boris Johnson leaves office, he wants to talk about his legacy. OK, let's talk about his legacy. July 2019. Following a concerted campaign to destabilise the premiership of Theresa May, Boris Johnson fulfils his lifetime ambition and becomes Prime Minister. One of his first consequential acts is to advise the Queen to suspend Parliament for five weeks, subverting democracy in order to avoid scrutiny of his Brexit plans. A court finds that Boris Johnson's advice to Buckingham Palace recommending the suspension was flawed and untrue. In other words, he lied to the Queen. December. He brandishes his so-called oven-ready deal on the campaign trail before winning a majority of 80 at the general election. Two years later, he will seek to have the deal overturned, January 2020, as cases of a new coronavirus start spreading, NHS England declares its first ever level four critical incident. February, the government holds five emergency COBRA meetings to agree Britain's response to the COVID crisis. Johnson misses all five meetings. The Prime Minister did not attend any of them. Is that true? Uh, he didn't. Instead, he retreats to his country house at Chevening to finalise divorce plans and a financial settlement with his estranged wife. March 23rd, Johnson finally orders a national lockdown. A detailed scientific analysis will later find that delaying the decision by a week cost 21,000 lives. March 27th, Johnson tests positive for COVID. He falls seriously ill, but eventually recovers. May the 10th. You must obey the rules on social distancing. And to enforce those rules, we will increase the fines for the small minority who break them. Ten days later, Johnson attends a party at Downing Street against his government's own lockdown rules. 100 invitees are told to bring your own booze. After the party, one of Johnson's advisers will message a colleague to say, we seem to have got away with it. Two days later, news of Dominic Cummings' lockdown-busting trip to Barnard Castle emerges. Mr Cummings, are you going to resign? Johnson is faced with a choice. Defend the government's public health messaging in the face of a deadly pandemic that's claiming tens of thousands of lives, or back his advisor. Johnson chooses to trash the government's COVID strategy and instead support Cummings. He has acted responsibly and legally and with integrity. June, Johnson attends an illegal party with 30 people in the cabinet room. October, a mystery donation of £52,800 is made to the Conservative Party by Johnson's friend Lord Brownlow. It will later transpire that Johnson is engaged in an expensive refurbishment of the Downing Street flat and has asked Brownlow to pay for it, despite the arrangement being a breach of electoral law. Designer Lulu Little has been hired with individual rolls of gold wallpaper costing £800 each. That same month, an investigation by Good Law Project reveals the existence of a secretive VIP lane for companies seeking to secure government COVID contracts. The system allows businesses and individuals with political connections to the Conservative Party to gain preferential treatment as they seek to land huge contracts for PPE. The resulting deals often involve inflated prices and the supply of unusable equipment. October 31st. Johnson refuses to countenance a further lockdown, telling colleagues, let the bodies pile high in their thousands. November. The COVID death toll passes 50,000. Two days later, Johnson attends a party in the Downing Street flat to celebrate the departure of his advisor, Dominic Cummings. December. There is a slew of Downing Street parties. At one of them, red wine is said to have been sprayed on the walls, while one source describes the scene inside the event as carnage. The party will later become infamous when Johnson's staff joke at a mock press conference about how to keep details of what happened from the public. This fictional party was a business meeting. <laughs> and it was not socially distanced. 
January 26, 2021, the COVID death toll passes 100,000. April 16th, two Downing Street parties are held on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral. A staffer is sent out to bring back a suitcase full of booze before drunken partygoers break the child's swing in the Downing Street garden. The next morning, the Queen follows Johnson's lockdown rules, mourning alone. August. As British and American forces conduct a disorderly exit from Afghanistan, the Taliban retakes power, triggering chaotic scenes as thousands try to flee through Kabul airport. This is an emergency now. Tens of thousands are trying to get through. At the front, they're being crushed. According to a whistleblower, Boris Johnson personally intervenes to request the evacuation team use considerable capacity to rescue 94 dogs and 68 cats from an animal charity. Meanwhile, countless Afghan civilians, including those who have worked for British forces in the country, are left behind to face the Taliban. Johnson denies any involvement in prioritising the rescue of animals over people. This whole thing is, is, is total rhubarb. But another whistleblower exposes this latest lie. In evidence to the Foreign Affairs Committee, Josie Stewart wrote, it was widespread knowledge that the decision on Nauzad's Afghan staff came from the Prime Minister. October 26th. MP Owen Paterson is found guilty of egregious breaches of paid lobbying rules by the House of Commons sleaze watchdog, including lobbying for health company Randox, having helped them secure over half a billion pounds in government COVID contracts without tender or an open process. November. Paterson faces suspension from Parliament, but Johnson backs Paterson and instead tries to change the rules by curtailing the power of the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner, the body investigating Paterson. After a public outcry, Johnson is forced to back down and Paterson is suspended. The Standards Commissioner is also probing the funding of Johnson's flat renovation, raising questions about his motivations for seeking to neuter the body. Days later, the public learns for the first time that Johnson and his colleagues attended numerous parties which broke his own rules. December the 1st, Johnson lies to the public. All guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. December the 7th, he lies again. Uh, all the guidelines were observed, continue to be observed. Over the following weeks and months, Johnson will repeatedly lie about his attendance at and knowledge of the parties. December 9th, the Electoral Commission delivers its verdict on the flat renovation scandal. Johnson is found to have failed to properly report the donations from Lord Brownlow. The Conservative Party is fined £17,000. January 12, 2022, the government's VIP lane for awarding COVID-19 contracts is ruled unlawful by the High Court. February, Johnson makes MP Chris Pincher his Deputy Chief Whip. April, Boris Johnson becomes the first sitting Prime Minister in history to be found to have broken the law when he's fined by the Metropolitan Police for breaking his own lockdown rules. May, Sue Gray publishes her report into Partygate, detailing how officials in government held rule-breaking parties, had drunken fights, threw up, sang karaoke, mocked security guards and cleaners. All of this, Gray concludes, was enabled by a failure of leadership at the heart of government. June 6th, John Penrose, the Prime Minister's anti-corruption czar, resigns. It's pretty clear that he has broken the ministerial code in a very material way. A week later, his ethics adviser, Lord Geit, will also resign. June 30th, Johnson's Deputy Chief Whip, Chris Pincher, resigns in disgrace amidst reports that he sexually assaulted two men at a private club the night before. Questions are raised about what Johnson knew about Pincher's reputation at the time he appointed him. He sends ministers out to defend him in the media, repeating what is a lie. I have had an assurance from number 10 that the Prime Minister was not aware of any specific allegation or complaint regarding the former Deputy Chief Whip. 
July 5th, a devastating intervention by the former head of the Foreign Office confirms that Johnson was, in fact, aware of a formal complaint against Pinscher when he appointed him and that the complaint was upheld in a disciplinary process confirming his misconduct. The Prime Minister has once again been caught in a lie. The next day, as dozens of his ministers resign en masse in an effort to force his resignation, Johnson is forced to confirm allegations that as Foreign Secretary he secretly met an ex-KGB spy allied to Vladimir Putin without any of his officials being present. July 7th. Amidst scandal, disgrace and an erosion of standards in public life, Boris Johnson finally resigns. Inflation stands at 9%. Britain's trade performance is the worst on record and trust in politicians is at an all-time low. Ten days later, parts of the UK hit 40 degrees centigrade and wildfires destroy streets in East London. Johnson ends his premiership as he started it, choosing to skip a crucial Cobra meeting on the crisis and instead going for a ride in a fighter jet and hosting a party at Chequers. That is pretty damning, isn't it? Yeah, the words party at the end of the world seem to (laughs) spring to mind. Any one of these things would have brought down past prime ministers, any one of those scandals. And because they were sort of coming thick and fast, you almost forgot yesterday's scandal because today's one was worse. And this underlying pattern of lie, 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 why did it take so long to get rid of them? It did tend to be that one thing's a plant of the next. And also there was constant smokescreen of real world calamities going on, which they were able to hide behind the entire time. As well. I think Yeah, people didn't know how to react. It was Mm. sort of, they're doing these things. I can't believe they're doing these things. What do we actually do if people are doing these things? Well, that yeah, that I mean, that is a good point because the ministerial code and all these things, they rely on people following them. And as soon as somebody doesn't follow them, if the person whose job it is to enforce the code refuses to follow it, there's nobody else who can hold him to account. Who arrests the Prime Minister? Trump was very much the same. But maybe we just thought that, um, or British exceptionalism thought that it couldn't apply here. But Trump and Johnson following almost exactly the same playbook. The rise of these populist figures who sway people into the whole notion of, oh, they're so different and quirky, and then they tend to do things like this, yeah. As somebody once said to me, well, Trump, Johnson, and there's a third who fits that mould as well. Blonde hair, makes a lot of noise, lies, says quirky things, and that was Jimmy Savile. So having said farewell to Boris Johnson... What did Nicola Sturgeon think when she looked back on his premiership? I obviously wish him and his family well, um, but there is no getting away from the fact that Boris Johnson has been the worst Prime Minister, certainly in in my lifetime. He has uh, discredited his office. Uh, He has, you know, delivered chaos to uh, the governance of the UK, and he has failed to use the enormous powers and responsibilities and resources that he has at his disposal to make life better for the people he set out. So instead, he seems to have been more interested in it serving himself than the people of the UK. So I'm not sure there are going to be many people in Scotland uh, who are sorry to see Boris Johnson depart as Prime Minister. Then the news broke that Liz Truss was the last one standing in the Tory talent puddle as all the lesser candidates fell away. Yeah, no, the news coverage on it was very much in the same vein as sort of X-Factor, Pop Isles, who's through to this round? What are their attributes and their sad backstories? You know, it's, it's kind of one of those. <laughs> That's a really good analogy because they're famous for about half an hour and then they never quite live up to that promise, do they?
Do you think she'll be an improvement on Boris Johnson? <laughs> the hard question to start with. Look, time will tell. It's obviously the case that Liz Truss and I don't agree on very much politically, but I'm a firm believer in giving anybody who's coming into the office of Prime Minister a chance to prove themselves, and I will certainly do my best to build a constructive working relationship with her. Remember, she will be the, the fourth Prime Minister that I've had to deal with in my time as First Minister, and despite my differences with David Cameron, Theresa May, uh, perhaps less so with Boris Johnson, but it wasn't for the want of trying, I've managed to have uh, decent working relationships, and I'll certainly try to do that with Liz Truss as well. Um, I think everybody will want to see uh, what she is going to do. She faces, as all of us do right now, immense challenges. I hope the very first thing she does in office is cancel the looming increase in energy prices, the increase in the energy price cap, and deliver some very substantial help to individuals and businesses. The one thing I would say is that if she governs as she has campaigned over the summer, she will be a disaster, uh, not just for Scotland, but for all of the UK. But let's hope that's not the case, because this is a very serious time for the UK, and it needs very serious and very purposeful leadership. You say if she governs as she camp has campaigned, she'll be a disaster. Why do you think that? Well, because she has campaigned on the very, how can I say this politely, niche priorities of 100,000 members of the Conservative Party, you know, focusing on things like tax cuts that would benefit the very richest when it is ordinary people across the country who desperately need help uh, to feed their children and heat their homes. You know, there's been a focus on what the Conservatives would describe as, as woke politics, you know, rhetoric that looks as if it is rowing back on the moral uh, obligation we all have to tackle the climate emergency, which as it happens is also uh, the right thing to do over the long term to lower energy prices and improve energy security. So the obsessions of a tiny, tiny uh, number of Conservative Party members uh, are not the right priorities for the country. So I think it won't take very long to see whether she is going to govern as a Prime Minister with a focus on the real priorities of the country or not. I think that will become very obvious and evident, perhaps within the first 24 or 48 hours of her Premiership. So let's hope uh, she chooses the responsible course uh, and stops pandering to uh, the margins and the Conservative Party. Are you concerned that if she does push ahead uh, with tax cuts, as we believe uh, is likely, uh, to say the least, um, what impact that could have on the spending envelope for Scotland? And whatever happens, do you think you're going to have to do an emergency budget uh, in response to the new Prime Minister? Uh, well, we're undertaking an emergency budget review right now, and we are committed to setting out the outcome of that effectively in an emergency budget uh, within a couple of weeks of whatever budget or fiscal event uh, the new Prime Minister has. Now, we don't know for sure uh, when that will happen or what form that will take, but our working assumption is there will be something of that nature by the end of September. I certainly think that is necessary. And to your question, yes, I am profoundly concerned uh, about the potential impact of that on the Scottish Government's budget, and I know my counterparts in Wales and Northern Ireland will have the same concerns. I mean, right now we are 
uh, working within budgets that are effectively fixed and finite. They are not rising in line with inflation, but the inflationary pressures are bearing down on our budget as they are on the household budgets of families across the country. Any move, and this is a real risk, that would cut our budgets within this financial year would obviously be of profound concern because it would have big implications for the National Health Service, for local authority budgets, for every aspect of our spending. You know, one of the things we've been trying to do within that finite budget is help those who most need it. We have established a, a Scottish child payment support that doesn't exist anywhere else in the UK, currently giving £20 per week per child to the lowest income families. We have plans to increase that to £25 a week. Real tangible help at this time of crisis and we don't want anything uh, that reduces our ability to do other things to help. This, it, this actually is the reality that the Scottish Government under the current constitutional settlement is stuck with and we've seen already the just the, the attacks where you've got the Scottish Tories, Scottish Labour and the Scottish media lined up to attack a single topic. They, they chose the NHS waiting times for example which are still the best in the UK. Mm-hmm. They're the worst there ever been everywhere because there's been a pandemic and now there's, there's a cost of living crisis. Add to that, the pound has just tanked. you got to watch out about trying to talk about the pandemic in the past 10 cents. I mean... Oh, that's true, actually. Yes, it's still... Covid's still, still out there, there and we're heading into winter. That's when the bugs flare up. My other concern about tax cuts is that the target those who are already at the the best off. You know, many people who are really struggling right now already don't pay income tax and wouldn't benefit from a cut there and and wouldn't benefit in the same way that richer people would from a cut in national insurance, for example. So this is a time to focus on what is really needed. Can't freeze energy prices first and foremost, come to an arrangement then between government and the energy companies about how that is paid back over a longer period of time, effectively spread and share the burden of the soaring gas prices, uh, help businesses because businesses uh, don't even have the limited protection of an energy price cap, get more cash into the, the pockets of those who need it most and free up more spending ability for the devolved government so we can do more to protect public services and public sector workers right now. So there's a package that a new Prime Minister could bring to bear and it would deliver real help and relief to millions across the UK. You mentioned as well uh, an action on energy bills. Uh, Liz Truss has said she would take immediate action on that. There are reports that that could include more drilling licences in the North Sea. Would you be happy to see more oil and gas taken from the North Sea to try and increase energy supply? But we've got to uh, make a careful and just transition away from oil and gas. Uh, That's an imperative for the the planet right now, but actually it is the the way that we work towards greater energy security and lower energy uh, bills. We are undertaking right now in the Scottish Government our own uh, energy review, looking at the requirements over the longer term. Uh, But, you know, what is more important, I think, uh, than continuing to explore for more oil and gas is that we fully support uh, the renewable energy transition. So we've just had uh, an auction round uh, in the North Sea, which has given the initial go-ahead to up to 28 gigawatts of offshore wind energy. That's the future. Uh, that also gives us enormous potential in green hydrogen uh, to help uh, fulfil our own energy needs, but also can be a big export potential. So that's what I said earlier on. Uh, we need to support oil and gas as it transitions, and there's lots of workers 
in Scotland dependent on that industry right now. So I'm not complacent about that, but it is the wrong priority uh, if you take your eye off the renewables uh, revolution and the renewables transition. And that's what worries me, uh, as well as irresponsible talk about fracking, for example. Let's focus on uh, making sure that we harness our renewables potential, uh, which fulfils all of these important objectives in the longer term. Because the Queen was at Balmoral as a, a break from tradition, both Johnson and Truss flew in separate flights to Aberdeen. I have heard the odd comment that the Queen held on long enough to make sure Boris had resigned. <laughs> but Johnson got there. This is how Liz Truss began her new job as Prime Minister of the UK. Where is Liz Truss? Um, because there has been, as you hinted, there's been fog and her flight, I think, has been delayed with its landing and they've been having to circle around Aberdeen and uh, all points to the north, hoping and waiting for the fog to clear. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Okay, so within days of having a new prime minister, the huge news that I think everybody knew was going to happen at some point, but nobody seems to have really believed, the Queen died. And two weeks of the media trying to make silence and cues interesting. Well, again, as we saw in Ballater, very, very quiet. People just pausing, watching as the convoy drove through the town. I'm told there was some applause in some areas that I think our cameras perhaps didn't pick up. But again, as we saw in Balata, just that sense of, a sense of stillness. The, the crowd swiftly dispersing, but, but a sense of quiet. She's actually having to artificially insert pauses in between what she's saying just to make it last long enough to fill the segment. There was nothing happening. Nobody was saying anything. There was some people. A thing drove through, but we didn't capture it. <laughs> and then the crowds dispersed as silently as they had appeared. However, it was obviously a huge event in some people's lives. SNP policy apparently is to, to retain the monarchy, although I think that's one of the decisions that we will make ourselves as an independent country. Support for the monarchy in Scotland is a lot less mm. than it is in England. Support for the monarchy is hugely less in younger age groups. Mm -hmm. So even just because of changing attitudes, it's something that you can see as being on its way out. But these people have clung to power for a thousand years. The thing that I think is going to be really telling is if you look at the ostentatiousness of that funeral, and even worse, the ostentatiousness that's going to be Charles's coronation, which may be next year, and compare that to a population that can't heat their homes. Here's a family that presides over a massive amount of wealth whose people are starving. Is that really anything to be proud of? Is that a sign of a successful country? Yeah, you kind of have to hope that's not lost on people where there's been like cavalcades recently of documentaries about her because they've been wheeling them all out. And it's largely things like describing each and every one of the jewels in the royal crown yeah. and where it had come from well, and how valuable it was. And where yeah. it had been nicked from. I mean, at the end of the day, she was a 96 
six-year-old woman. She's had a good innings. She's had a life of wealth and comfort. That's sort of one side of it that we have paid for. Mm -hmm. There's no denying that she has done her duty from the minute she was crowned for the next 70 years. I mean, a 96-year-old woman still working. That's real Tory Britain, isn't it? (laughs) She never got to retire. And at least she did have her jubilee, four days of celebrations, just a few months ago. Working in the sense that she allowed herself to be paraded in front of many people on many occasions in limousines and occasionally deigned to cut a ribbon. Uh, Certainly the older generation. I mean, my mother in her 80s grew up with her and, and sort of saw parallels completely fictitious ones between her life and the Queen's life. It is. It's the old ideal of Queen and country. It's that you cannot have one without the other for some reason. (laughs) Although lots of countries successfully do. There's countries in Europe, for example, who have retained their monarchy, but in a much more modest sort of ceremonial role. They aren't the richest landowners in the world. They don't have, you know, the kings and queens of Norway... Sweden, Denmark, they have found a a sort of balance. And as far as I can tell, besides the massive financial support, they play a largely similar role, which is essentially ceremonial. It's opening thing. The further the process went south, the more medals and uniforms appeared on the chest of members of the royal family, including Zara Phillips' husband, Mike Tyndall, who's a former rugby player. What did he get those for? Never served in the armed forces. Certainly from my pals, they just kept their heads down and waited for it all to be over. I mean, they didn't want to be disrespectful and during the, the funeral of a, an old lady. But this idea that BBC commentators spoke for everybody, I found, personally, I found offensive. But the one thing that lightened the proceedings a little, there was a, a story going round on Twitter that Nicholas Witchell, out of respect, he was going to be walled up alive with the Queen. <laughs> that was quite funny. And then there was um, Grief Watch or Mourn Watch, all the ridiculous things. A toilet where they put a notice on the condom machine saying that no condoms would be sold during the period of mourning, out of respect. Food banks weren't opened, out of respect. <laughs> that was my favourite part of it, was all the numerous tokens of respect yes. that appeared to be being shown across the board. And... Random nods for no reason, though. It's like you were working in a bookshop. You you had to take off the uh, for sale stickers off any royal books. That's right. She could not seen be seen to have been devalued in some way. Yeah, well, certainly not in the remainder. What was centre parks where they were going to oh, have yeah. to send the holiday people home out of respect? And then they decided they reneged on that and said, "No, you can stay, but you can't leave your cabins." That's right. And then we had Charles being announced as king, and I'm not sure it went exactly as they thought it was going to. God save the king! Will Charles be the last monarch? No, hopefully she is. Hopefully Hopefully he ends up just being more of a ceremonial figurehead. In Holyrood, there was a session. In fact, there were two sessions one of which was superfluous, I believe, and boycotted by the Greens. But the first session was about giving condolences and it was attended by Charles and Camilla. Uh, Patrick Harvey gave what I thought was a very good speech, certainly ruffled a few feathers. The experience of loss is universal. It comes into all of our lives. It's a reminder that the reality of human life is not rooted in status or in title, but in the connections we make, bonds of love and friendship, of family and of service to one another. 
People of all views can respect this, whatever else we may disagree about. So in this moment, as we mark the death of the Queen, I offer my party's sincere condolences to her son, to all of his family, and to all those whose lives she touched. For many people, a monarch stands as a symbol of the country. If this is true, then this is a moment uh, more than one of personal loss for those we stand with in their grief. It's also a time to reflect on the change the Queen witnessed during such a long reign. When Princess Elizabeth of York became Queen Elizabeth II, the UK was still early in its recovery from a brutal world war and had begun laying the foundations of something extraordinary a welfare state and a national health service to tackle the giant evils of the age. Nearly three decades of declining inequality followed. At the last coronation, the oath still referred to other countries as the possessions of an empire. And here at home, human rights and equality were distant ideas, with racist discrimination remaining legal and people treated as criminals and outcasts because of their sexuality. Now we can look back and celebrate extraordinary progressive change, even as we must continue to defend what has been achieved. There are those for whom the long reign of Elizabeth II, and indeed the institution of monarchy, represent continuity, stability, permanence. But in truth, the tide of progress cannot be halted. It feels slow as we live it day by day, but in time it is dramatic. So, Presiding Officer, as Charles III begins his reign, let us hope, indeed redouble our determination, that he will have the opportunity to witness change just as transformational and more. It is still needed. This is quite timely because we've got the court case coming up on the 11th and 12th of October. Do, do the Scottish people have a right to hold a referendum to decide their own future or not? And interestingly, during his accession, Charles was required by law to swear a separate oath to uphold the Scottish claim of right. Now, this sent the people who are currently looking to the claim of right as the, the magic bullet that will solve our problems into delights. But here's what he actually said. I, Charles III, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of my other realms and territories, King defender of the faith, do faithfully promise and swear that I shall inviolably maintain and preserve the settlement of the true Protestant religion as established by the laws made in Scotland in prosecution of the claim of right. What he is saying now <laughs> in 2022 would have been quite at home in the 16th century. It would, and also... Anti-Catholic rhetoric. It was, I will uphold the Protestant faith. And one, what's one of the issues we've still got in Scotland? Sectarian um, divisions and, and orange marches and all that tension, particularly on the West Coast. So the mm. fact that he's swearing to uphold that... Because yeah. it's baked into the monarchy. And that it is still in documents that people can still, without blushing, say. Yeah. And he can't become king without promising to uphold it. it. There's no way that the claim of right, as it appeared at that time, is fit for the kind of society we've got today. And however, Charles III is now the king. Next year, there'll be a coronation. 
we're also hoping to have a referendum next year. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens between now and then, whether they manage to have the two events quite close together or whether that backfires and actually people go, this is madness, we have to get we have to get out from under this interesting time. So. Yeah. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Finally, Parliament has reconvened and we've got a new Prime Minister, a new Cabinet, but actually the same old nonsense being discussed. Start with favourite from this podcast, Stephen Flynn. And if you just look at the announcements of our Cabinet in the last day or so, it kind of reflects that. You know, we've got a Chancellor who said that UK workers are lazy. We've got a Home Secretary who doesn't respect human rights. We have a Secretary of State for Energy who's a climate denier and now we have a Secretary of State for Northern Ireland who appears, as I understand it, to be a a massive Brexiteer and yet he's the one who's going to have to negotiate a solution to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Of course, Liz Truss is going to be a disaster for the UK, but more importantly, she's going to be a disaster for the people of Scotland, people who did not elect her and Mm. who have not elected the Tories since 1955. And that cabinet very, very heavily weighted to the ERG, the European Research Group. Although the BBC talk about other countries where far-right groups are either gaining ground or, as in Italy, have just been elected, they never actually mention we have a far-right group in Parliament in power in the UK. Funny that, isn't it? Next, Ed Miliband, reacting with astonishment, as we all do, to the news that Jacob Rees-Mogg, previously known as the the Minister for the 18th Century and the Minister for Brexit Opportunities, he's a climate change denier, he's got wealth in offshore trusts, he's serving as Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. To ask the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy to make a statement regarding the lifting of the moratorium on shale gas extraction. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker, and what a pleasure it is to be continuing um, on this uh, theme. Um, And indeed, the the, um, Honourable Lady is right to be saying to me that I need to find the right page, because I I am having some difficulty in finding the right page uh, immediately. Um, But but don't worry. Don't worry. Um, Or, 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 uh, Secretary of State. Is there another copy we can send through? Have you got it? Order, Secretary of State. Mr Speaker, I'm very grateful to the Right Honourable Gentleman for uh, bringing forward his urgent question, and I'm glad to be able to announce that the moratorium on extraction of shale gas is being lifted, and a statement has been laid before the House to do this. As I was setting out um, in the previous urgent question, it is important that we use all available sources of fuel within this country. It is more environmentally friendly to use our own sources of fuel rather than to extract them from other countries and transport them here at great cost, both financially and in terms of carbon. It is something, therefore, that we need to revisit, and we need to revisit the seismic limits to ensure that shale gas extraction can be done in an effective and efficient way. 
Ted Mr. Speaker, this is obviously a case of the dog ate my homework, and, who, uh, and, and it's hardly surprising. Let, let's start by taking his excuse for lifting the fracking ban, Mr. Speaker, that it will make a difference to the energy bills crisis. It won't, because gas is sold on the international market. The current Chancellor, the current Chancellor, said so in February of this year, and I quote. No amount of shale gas would be enough to, the, to lower the European price of gas. Even, Mr Speaker, the founder of Quadrilla said the Secretary of State is wrong in an article published yesterday. So first, why doesn't he admit the truth that anyone who knows anything about this subject says his claim that fracking will cut bills is nonsense? N- next, let's come to safety. The 2019 manifesto on which he and every member of the party opposite stood said this, said this, Uh, Mr Speaker, we will not support fracking unless the science shows categorically that it can be done safely. They are lifting the ban, but they can't supply the evidence, and the British Geological Survey published today certainly doesn't do it. So, in the absence of the evidence, his approach is to change the safety limits. He says in his written statement laid before this House, tolerating a higher degree of risk and disturbance appears to us to be in the national interest. I look forward to him and his colleagues explaining his charter for earthquakes to the people of Lancashire, Yorkshire, the Midlands, Sussex, Dorset and indeed Somerset who will be part of his dangerous experiment. Let me tell the party opposite. We will hang this broken promise round their necks in every part of the country between now and the next general election. The Conservative manifesto also said Having listened to local communities, we have ruled out changes to the planning system. Does he stand by that promise? And how will he abide by the Prime Minister's commitment to local consent? The truth is, he doesn't get this, that you can't escape a fossil fuels crisis by doubling down on fossil fuels. Renewables are today nine times cheaper than gas. The only way to cut energy bills and have energy security is with zero-carbon homegrown power, including onshore wind and solar, which his wing of the Conservative Party hates and he continues to block. For communities in every part of our country, today shows they can never trust a word this government says again. And he has shown he is willing to break his promises to support dangerous fringe ideas that put the interests of fossil fuel companies above that of the British people. That's quite powerful stuff from Ed Miliband, wasn't it? Yeah, certainly. It's that they're absolutely terrified to leave even a penny in the ground. Yeah. And in America, and there was huge scandals of water supplies being poisoned, and you know, it's not even an efficient way of getting energy out. They've just changed the rules. They've just decided not to worry about that. Now suddenly, it's all good, and that's what we should be doing. It's horrifying. It really is horrifying. Mm. And the problem with Reese Mogg is you just know he has got no. Un- understanding of what he's talking about he's just following dogma from the erg which he is a prominent member of yeah he's been given a line and he's going to stick to it he's going to take it what these guys don't seem to realize is their money's going to burn the same as everybody else's if we wreck the planet stephen flynn smp spokesperson yeah mr speaker there can be no doubt that this particular political earthquake is absolutely bonkers The UK faces two problems when it comes to energy. Energy prices and energy security. Let's be clear, when it comes to energy prices, producing shale gas will make absolutely no difference whatsoever. 
And when it comes to energy security, what this government could and should be doing is turbocharging renewables and creating a CFD for the likes of hydrogen to ensure that we have hydrogen boilers in the future, not reliant upon gas boilers of the past. But luckily, Mr Speaker, in Scotland there will be no change, there will be no fracking whatsoever. We, unlike the Tories, stick to our Word. And isn't it great to know that that will not change? But the one thing that will change is we'll be long gone from the shackles of this place by the time shale gas is produced in England. In Scotland, energy is reserved, but planning is devolved. So the reason we have no shale gas extraction currently in Scotland, the, the ban in effect, is because we've banned the planning applications. No planning applications for shale gas are being approved. Now, what is going to be interesting is that the Internal Market Bill and also there's another bill going through Parliament just now, which is the Brexit Freedoms Bill, allows Westminster to override the devolved administrations. Now, if that happens, if they want um, shale gas fracking in Scotland they would need to override Holyrood's planning powers, which would be, again, another step that you would never have thought they would contemplate. And yet, that's what they're going to have to do. How many people do we have looking into that? Because that sounds like one of those classic sort of interesting ways you can put a spanner into the works without actually going against the rule of the law. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, w- I would like to see a lot more things where it's, well, we don't have control over X. But you know what leads into X, Y, and we do control Y. It just shows you how far we've moved from the Smith Commission just after the Indiref saying that Scotland's government's going to be the most powerful devolved government in the world. It's going to get masses of new powers. We've put it on a permanent footing. We can't legislate except with express consent. One by one, all those things have been rowed back on. Interesting to see what happens next. Promise them the mile, give them the inch. Uh, Yes, very much so. And going back to how is the UK seen from outside, this is Larry Summers in a very short clip, but he's talking about the UK market. This is how the rest of the world now sees the UK. It makes me very sorry to say, but uh, I think the UK is behaving a bit like an emerging market turning itself into... Uh, a submerging uh, market. There's nothing in the pattern of market response in the UK that suggests anything but fear rather than confidence in the policy approaches uh, being taken. It would not surprise me if the pound eventually gets below a dollar if the current policy path uh, is maintained. Larry Summers, who is the former United States Secretary of the Treasury, and his point there that he, it wouldn't surprise him if the pound gets level with the dollar, we're almost there. Yep, at last I saw it was down to about the worth of a dollar and three cents. One Tory MP and former minister said the party has been possessed by some sort of evangelical zeal. It defies all scientific and economic logic. Logic. It's utterly humiliating. The UK central banks have had to step in. Who's going to explain to people mortgage payments could go up by hundreds of pounds? Another backbench MP, I'm shell-chopped. Another senior Tory backbencher, I thought Boris Johnson's cabinet the worst in history. That one's just beaten it. Uh, another backbench Tory MP, I think Kwasi Kwarteng is going to have to clarify his position very quickly indeed. That gives you a flavour of the horror in the Tory party. 
Now, I've just been kind of getting more detail on precisely what was it that lay behind the bank's intervention, an incredibly unusual intervention for them to go in and start buying up specific government bonds because they noticed dysfunction in the market, essentially that part of the market not working. Well, what are the pragmatic consequences? What's the pragmatic story that lies beneath that? Well, I'm told that what they were responding to is, is what internally has been described as a run dynamic. What does that mean? It's very similar in kind of wholesale terms to what we saw with Northern Rock when there was that run on that bank uh, back in 2007. A, a vicious cycle, essentially, people trying to withdraw money, uh, which in turn leads sometimes inevitably to financial collapse. And I'm told that there were a number, a swathe of pension funds that were it not for the government's intervention would have essentially collapsed, been insolvent by this afternoon. That's how fast moving this crisis in the pensions market was. It's the gilts market that lies underneath the defines benefits pensions schemes, all of whom are reliant on that market uh, for their funding and for the structure of their investments. The scale of that crisis is gradually becoming clearer. The bank was responding to what it conceived, conceived to be a run on that system, on that part of the financial system, and believed there would have been insolvencies across the pension system this afternoon. So in a matter of hours, had it not responded, it has responded. You've seen a big reaction in those markets where the bank has gone and started to buy those securities. But it is an extraordinary day. It's an extraordinary event. And of course, it comes after the extraordinary moves in financial assets that we've seen since uh, the announcements from the government on Friday. That triggered uh, a mass sell-off of many of these assets, which of course is leading to this uh, virtuous or rather vicious cycle facing many pension funds around the country. The UK, as we speak right now, is in the midst of an unfolding and rapidly deteriorating economic and financial crisis, and it's going to be ordinary people uh, that pay the price of that. Um, I don't think we've had a more serious uh, economic situation, uh, possibly even including 2008, which was a, a global financial crash, but in the UK, probably not a more serious situation in uh, our uh, memory. The big one, the really, really big self-harm, inflicted by the UK itself was the decision to do Brexit. That was a decision which was announced as going to increase flexibility for the UK, but you can see in the present crisis that it's doing precisely the opposite. When you have inflationary pressures, Brexit puts the pound down and put inflationary pressures up. When you have a growth problem in the UK now, you want to have increased ability for UK exports to export your way out of this problem that Brexit has put trade frictions in that way, and so on. So the problem is not just that they're sticking to a plan announced in the mini-budget, which is misjudged, but this, this is a series of major missteps by the government, which is culminating in this problem. And their determination to persist with all of this is simply uh, undermining confidence in the markets, uh, you know, minute by minute. And that was a roundup of tiny little clips, mainly from Twitter today. That's it for this month's Bits and Pieces podcast. Thanks for joining us. Bye now. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces.